want to roll the music. Roll the music, yeah. Let's go. So, <laughs> one of my favorite things, especially when it's still dark out, is to, to watch the garage door slowly go up, and you're standing there with your bags and your satchel, <laughs> <laughs> with your smiling face. <laughs> I'm here. I'm here, and, and, and a little bit of jerky. Good yeah. tidings of jerky. <laughs> All right, let's do this. Welcome to Restore Gospel Podcast. Welcome back. I'm Mike Barrett. I'm Corey Stark. We're two friends having casual conversation about the things of eternity, and we welcome you into that conversation. And we are here this morning in the wee hours of the morning, starting early. Hey, buddy, what's on your mind today? Oh, just en- enjoying being with you again, buddy. It's been a while, it seems like, anyhow. Yeah, it's been a few weeks since we've recorded. So I was thinking about, uh, well, we were kind of in conversation this week off and on through text messages, and uh, as it seems like when you're driving through the country, things are going through your mind, so I run them by you and th- see what you think about it, and I think, you know, you do the same thing. In the very, uh, when Paul states something in the, in the New Testament, he says a phrase that is so powerful, especially when he includes himself, I believe. I should actually look it up. I'm, I've been going by memory all week. But mm-hmm. he says something to the effect of, even if I or an angel from heaven would preach another gospel unto you, let him be accursed. Yeah. Let's, let's find that scripture and make sure I didn't paraphrase that too bad. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you do your, your magic with okay. your fingers while you... <laughs> so while you're looking that up, I wanted to say... Think about that statement from for a minute, coming from the source, number one, Paul the Apostle, who whose authority uh, Christians from all different denominations respect and use his words and quote his words in the New Testament. He was he had an amazing experience. You know, he he saw he was blinded on the on the way to what was it, to Damascus. I'm probably getting the city wrong. It's way too early, bud. <laughs> he saw Christ, right? And he was blind and he was told to go. I mean, I mean, he had this great conversion experience and he, he just went like 180 miles an hour towards all for the Lord Jesus Christ and, and preaching to the people that, you know, our ways are not the way anymore. Jesus Christ is the way and trying to get them to come away from the law of Moses and the law of, of all the, the works that they were doing for salvation and righteousness. This Paul, did you find the scripture? Yeah, Galatians. Go ahead, go ahead and read it. Read it for me. So um, it it actually comes in a parallel. I didn't realize it's two verses. Galatians chapter one verse eight. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. That's verse eight. This is verse nine. And as we said before, so say I now again. If any man preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have received, let him be accursed. So it's like he's he repeats it, but nevertheless, what's interesting about this when you compare it to the Book of Mormon is Nephi sees that when the preachers in Jesus' day, the apostles, and that would include Paul and others who came after, he said the word went out in purity. He said these people... You know, they they got it finally at that point. But um, and I just share that because 
there's been so much kind of resting of the scriptures like we've been talking about in class where people take part of a scripture and that's not the whole gospel, but they'll say it's the whole gospel. And then they'll even say, uh, you don't need to know about the rest of it or care about the rest of it. And they'll even take baptism and say, oh, yeah, this doesn't count anymore and all these little things. Well, it's like all that's part of the uh, any other gospel as well. But nevertheless, um, yeah. So what's on your mind regarding this gospel that Paul was preaching? Well, that's what I <clears> – what do you think was the gospel that he was referring to? You know <sighs> – so this is from the Book of Mormon, but it's the it's the gospel, and it's the words Nephi uses in his final words in the second book of Nephi, where he says, "Hey, once you have come in the, at the gate, he said, do you think all is done?" And the answer is no. And and the gate he's talking about is, you know, coming to Christ, making a covenant, and and witnessing in baptism and receiving the Holy Ghost. And once you have that, he says, now you have to walk in the way. And and that's the gospel is that we we and walking in the way means now that you've been you know given this gift of the Holy Ghost that it leads you and it and the Word sh- shows you you know that the, the Holy Ghost shows you the Word leads you and then you endure through prayer you know through through this constant communication with God so that you bear fruit you know and that's ultimately what it is you know we were created to bear fruit. When our uh, our theme for the month at the at the branch I go to is is um, choose to press forward with a perfect brightness of hope, and I think we've talked about the scripture somewhat in the Book of Mormon a number of times, but there's a there's a oh uh, a word picture there, and I had in my mind when you said it's to press forward with a perfect brightness of hope where where are we pressing forward to and what what does that look like and you're talking about the way uh, in the book of mormon maybe we'll talk about this a little more but pressing forward <clears throat> we're, we're all heading towards that time when we meet god and that's that's what the pressing forward is the book of mormon clearly tells us that this day is a day of probation it's a time to um prepare to meet god the inspired version of the in Genesis, um, says that Adam, you know, he found some happiness when he realized that a time was granted unto him to repent, you know, and, and he was, the inspired version brings out so clearly that he was taught about Jesus yeah. and he was baptized. Adam was baptized and was taught about Jesus. Um, and he's, they, he obeyed the Lord and, and repented that, that hope was from the beginning, but Pressing forward with a perfect brightness of hope, we we have to have a hope that when we come in contact with holiness at the end of our life, that we're not consumed by that holiness, and that there's a way for us to survive that encounter with the Almighty Holy God. Yeah, right, and not shrink back. That's the what the Book of Mormon teaches so clearly is that we're all going to stand before God, and to those who have lived their life with that brightness of hope and have recognized our unworthiness. Um, he said, as you said so well in a, in a message just very recently, that our filthy rags are exchanged for a robe of righteousness, you know, in a, in a spiritual metaphorical sense. And for those who don't experience that, the Book of Mormon says this, they're going to meet God and all they can see is their own sin and they're going to shrink back and they're going to remain in their sin. And that's, you know, that's 
the difference of having this perfect brightness of hope. I, I love this. Uh, there's a scripture that uses this word assurity, and um, uh, there's a uh, oh, this um, this comes from the Book of Mormon, where it's I think this really captures this idea that when we are um, walking with the Lord, that we can have this perfect brightness of hope for salvation because of the way I think we've taught salvation. And I know you and I love to come back to this subject because it's been eye-opening for both of us what the clarity of the Book of Mormon says. But but the, the Word says here that you know whoever comes to Christ can have this perfect brightness of hope or, in other words, can have this assurity that we're going to stand at the right hand of God. And this is this is the point of life is that, no, we're, we're not perfect, and it isn't that our works all had to be perfect either. It's that if we came in through the gate and we desired to lead a life that leads towards Christ, the, the evidence of that is that the Spirit was with us, we followed his word, we communicated with him in prayer. And with that, it says you have this assurance that, God's not going to like pull a fast one at the end of life and like, Oh, sorry. You know, you get, you, you don't get to see me for the rest of eternity. Right. That the point is that it, all your sin becomes removed and that makes you capable of standing with God again. I think a couple episodes ago, I don't remember which one it was, but I mentioned there was a time in my life when, um, I was witnessing to someone, I was actually a girl I was dating, and I, I was reading out of a church publication um, called The Angel Message. There was a series of tracts that were put out by the church a long time ago, and these were all compiled into a book, and that book was published not by the church, but by another publisher, but the tracts were written by the church. And I want to read, Corey, some of this, not not for the purpose to offend anyone or or accuse anyone. Um, I don't know the author of this specifically, but I did some reading in the past couple of weeks at, at some old uh, church publications that are books that many people have used that I own in my own library on the topic of eternal life. And I keep going back to that, that thing that Paul said, if, if we preach another gospel unto you, then let it be accursed. And I'm not saying that these, well, let's just read this and see what the scriptures say. See and how it compares. Yeah. So I had a, um, a Catholic girlfriend at one time, and of course they, they believe in heaven or hell. And then I, I'm, I'm not going to go too far into it because I'll probably be wrong, but a, a purgatory of some sort after you die. And I was explaining to her from my understanding and my upbringing that, that that's not exactly the case. And there there is truth to that. We don't believe that men die and are judged as soon as they die and go, uh, you know, to this eternal place of hell, of burning and fire, or heaven to be with God. But but we believe the scriptures clearly teach there's places of learning, there's a places of prison, and, um, and the scriptures teach that when, you know, Christ died and was resurrected, that, you know, people came out of the prison house that were there in the days of Noah. So we knew they had to have been wicked people and were able to stand at the right hand of God. But there's also a point of teaching that I grew up with that says, you know, you can spend eternity away and apart from God, but not be in hell. And that's where I find the scriptures don't 
measure up to that. It's it's the understanding of, you know, a couple of things that I just don't know how you can, you know, judge those and, and make them mesh with other scriptures. So let's just read this. This is this is uh this is from um, you know, material like I said that that we've grown up in in our culture. And uh, I'm going to read out of this this book. It says, "If God fixes," he says, he's talking about a a line of men for judgment. That's what this is called. And he wants to illustrate this. Let us, in imagination, arrange a line of men before us for judgment. At one end of the line is the meanest man that ever lived. At the other end is the best man that ever lived. They are graded down morally from the best to the worst and stand shoulder to shoulder, scarcely an inch apart physically and morally. Tell us now, where can we put our hand down in this line and say that all on this side shall go to heaven and all on that side shall go to hell? And if God fixes the dividing line between two certain men, will he say that this man who has missed hell only by the thickness of a hand shall go into heaven and share celestial glory equally with the best man who ever lived? And that this other man who has lost heaven by an inch shall go to hell and suffer the same punishment that is meted out to the worst man who ever profaned the human form? We do better than that here in our schools and in our police courts. We at least try to give reward in proportion to merit and mete out punishment according to degree of guilt. So there's, I see what they're saying. This is, they're making the point that other uh, religions would make. You know, there's different back, you know, people say, accept Christ and you go to heaven, you know, don't accept him and you go to hell. So I I see that they're making the argument and then they're going to come in and, and explain their belief or our belief as a church. So, so far I'm with them, except for the, except for that last part, that, that's just not even, uh, we don't get judged in eternity the way we try to meet out. We're imperfect people trying to meet out imperfect punishments and rewards in our system the best we can. But we're going to read the scriptures. That has nothing to do with what the scriptures say at the end. But, but let's go on. Drawing the line elsewhere is this next section. But one person says, we will not draw the line in that way. We will draw the line between those who accept Jesus and those who reject him. Very well, we will rearrange our line of men. But the problem is not solved in that way, for there still exists the utmost diversity of character, service, merit, and development among those who have accepted Jesus. Some are not worthy to receive, neither are they prepared to enjoy the rewards that others merit. What do you think about that? Well, none of it yet has brought up the merits of Christ. It's interesting because, you know, this is one of these things where you take a word that's found in Scripture, but it's misapplied. Everything so far has been about our merits. But what you're reading, Mike, is interesting because this this is an example, but it's not the only example where where final judgment, if you will, is laid out this way. And, and and it's kind of this idea that gets perpetuated without coming back and comparing it to Scripture. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to skip down, and there's other examples that are given here, but I want to get to the, to the meat of it, and it says this. God has a reward for every man proportionate to his works, his merit, his service, his spiritual development. He has a punishment for those who are condemned, adapted to the degree of moral 
turpitude of each, and he punishes to reform, not for vengeance. You know, there's an interesting idea, too, that he's punishing. I got I just want to interject there that the Book of Mormon teaches it a little bit differently. It's, the whole point is that it isn't that God has to punish or inflicts a punishment, even though it's, it's implied that way. The Book of Mormon more clearly explains that an eternal body, which we're all going to end up having with sin that's not removed, is punishment we can't fathom. That's that's his point of salvation is that we don't know what's ahead for us. We don't realize the consequence of not having sin removed. And he said that becomes as a lake of fire. That becomes, you know, the torment. Mm-hmm. And it's like I, I don't think God has to stick us, you know, with a hot poker or something <clears throat> like that to, to remind us of how bad we were. I think the, the whole point of the punishment is he said, no, in the end, everyone's consciousness is going to be perfect in a sense that we can't forget anything. And in this memory of sin, if the sin isn't removed, becomes the only thing we can think about. And that becomes hell, if you will. I mean, that's kind of how the Book of Mormon teaches it. Well, this goes on to say, Jesus worked out our salvation in the sense that he made it possible for us. He made the sacrifice. He lived the perfect life. He presents the divine plan. It is ours to accept and obey. But while he saves us out of love, when it comes to the question of reward, we must work that out. We will get that for which we work. This is made clear in the following. This is this is uh, really important stuff if this is our belief that that we get rewarded according to our, our work. The other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He's quoting scripture here. Now, if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire." So then, listen to this. This is the comment on that scripture. Some then may be saved terribly and as by fire and receive little or no reward. I don't, I don't get that from that scripture at all when thinking about everything that I read in the Book of Mormon. Mm-hmm. Others may receive reward according as they have built of precious stones, gold or silver on the foundation laid for them in the divine wisdom and mercy. That scripture was from 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15. I, 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 now, everything we've talked about, I'd want to go back and read everything surrounding that. But it says, it says he will suffer loss, but he's, he himself shall be saved, yet so is by fire. That's the refining fire of, of, of Christ that we all have to go through. We all have to be changed. It's saying if you're doing the works of, you know, if you're working for all these physical things, that's all going to be burned up. But... Mm-hmm. But it says, nevertheless, he shall be saved. It doesn't mean he's going to, what does that mean? I just feel like this is resting that scripture in a way that's not even to fit into a theology that we've perpetuated. Here's here's what I want to say up front. The, the church has been full of beautiful <clears throat> souls and people dedicated and giving their lives and loving people. And, and I know we've been directed by the Spirit, but what's amazing to me is that we can also say things, um, 
that are of our own understanding sometimes mixed with scripture and that we don't always have it clear. And I, I guess I come back to this often is, is this is kind of the final test isn't over how well we knew doctrine. The final test is exactly what the book of Mormon says. And, and, and this comes back to uh, why I guess this dividing line is totally different than what's printed here, but why also um, the, the, the difference between all humanity standing before God is really great. And, and it comes down to this word right here. Um, it's this broken and contrite. The Book of Mormon teaches this, Second Nephi chapter 1, verse 72. He offereth himself a sacrifice for sin to answer the ends of the law unto all those who have a broken and contrite spirit. And unto none else can the ends of the law be answered. You know, this, this writing implies that, hey, you can't just with the thickness of a hand say, okay, you were really bad, but you're good enough on the good side, and you were really good, but you were still on the bad side. And these people that there's this infinitesimal difference, he's saying this is the dividing line. We, if we estimate salvation in those terms, would think, man, it really doesn't seem fair that these two guys who there's probably no difference. One goes one way and goes the other, but that's not the dividing line that scripture presents. That's not the dividing line that Nephi writes about. Nephi writes about a very obvious dividing line. It's like, it's not like there's just a millimeter in between these people. He's there's miles between because he said one group was broken and contrite and the other isn't. And he, and it's, right. it's not like, it's not like there's a lot of shades of gray in between there. That's the yeah. point. And I, I realized that in this uh, book, this this explanation that they're making a they're they're presenting the argument that they've heard from other people, and they're trying to, uh, or they're trying to speak to that. But then they go on to say that each person, you know, receives award according to their their merits, and and the Book of Mormon so clearly almost says the, it says the exact opposite. It says you press forward relying whole, wholly, wholly upon the merits of him who's mighty to save. Your own merits can't save you. And, your own, and, and so then you get into this word salvation. To me, that's, that's reward. Yeah, yeah. If the Lord's mighty to save. Yeah. How great to make these things known unto men. This is the same... This is the same verse, same chapter that I just read from the next verse where it says he offered himself a sacrifice for sin to those with a broken heart and contrite spirit. That's 2 Nephi chapter 1, verse 72. You know, it's verse 73 is what you just said. How great to make, I'm sorry, how great the importance to make these things known unto the inhabitants of the earth that they may know that there is no flesh that can dwell in the presence of God save it be through the merits and mercy of and grace of the holy messiah you know in, in other words i love that that he i love when he puts that in there how great the importance to make these things known to the inhabitants of men mm-hmm. that this is very very important for for him to take the time to engrave that into metal it's important to make this known to make what known that no person can be in front of god except for the merits of jesus christ that's it i mean now, here is another thing, Corey, that um, when you say, when you're talking about reward, I mean, what are we really talking about? I, I, I see that in, in these arguments or this, this, the way they lay this, this out in this tract, rewards, 
based on what you've done, what what reward is there after you die? It's salvation. Yeah, it's the it's returning to God. That you that's that's the only thing that will ever complete you inside. That will fill that that hole, that void, to re- return to your Creator. It's not like there's. There's these these places out there. Well, this is a beautiful world. And, yeah, beautiful um, sunsets, beautiful you know, sunrises. The, I don't have God, but it's pretty. The, here. the fruit's good, and this I'm happy with this because this is all I want to receive. And um, that makes it all so temporal and all about us. It's like missing the point of that we are incomplete because we're separated from God, and that eternally, unless He laid down His life. Yeah. The, the other point is. <laughs> When we make these arguments, we're using we're using things of this world to try to create a philosophy and then carrying them over into the eternal, yeah, and, and act like it's a there's an eternal parallel to this, and it's really hard to do that. But when you're talking about men and various degrees of merit and how we sh- we're going to get a reward based on our morality and our merit, um, that's that's based on our view of this world, but holiness is so bright and so, I mean, I can't speak of holiness because I don't understand it. That's why it says in the Book of Mormon, when you stand there, you're either going to be so happy and so just enamored with the fact that you're clean and pure and you're going to be perfectly happy and have a perfect knowledge that every spot of sin and desire for sin has been wiped away and cleansed by Jesus and that robe of righteousness and that pure that's the other thing you're you're you have a robe of righteousness placed on you and you're clothed with purity think of purity purity is like there's no sin in my heart anymore there's no desire to sin and that's that's not because you somehow got to that point it's because you were broken and, and contrite and knew that you needed a Savior and that you couldn't purify yourself, that you can't be cleansed. And so finally, because your desire is to be broken, you're broken and you're contrite and your desire is to to say, God, I just I don't want to have the effects of sin anymore. I just want your righteousness. And he says, I'm going to give it to you. Yeah, and that's the only difference that we can make in this world because the reward is to have the sin removed. And if the sin's removed, we get to enjoy all the things that God has of eternity. And that's the reward is that the sin is removed. The punishment is that the sin remains. And and it always comes back to that. You know, our our works we do are temporal. You know, if, if someone wants to say, well, you know, your work was good because good you put, you know, $5 in the collection plate, but my one was better because I put six in. It's like, this is money that's measured in the eyes of men. You know, it comes back to our heart every time. How much did we yeah. want to give and sacrifice? What what the whole thing is, is how can temporal works that were done in the temporal body, in this sense, be the measure of your reward for eternity? There's, there's It's like comparing infinite to zero because the scriptures teach our works are as filthy rags. So it, it can't be the, the sum of our works that totaled up that, have any bearing in that sense in eternity it's because the reward isn't that it's our works made it possible our works were simply evidence that our hearts changed and that becomes the difference if our hearts change that's the broken contrite attitude that god said that is what can make the difference and that's how grace gets applied to remove the sin yeah, something that i thought about just this morning as we were talking before we started recording was uh if you're going to be re- if you're going to have a reward of some place some you know moon glory or star glory and based on your merits and your morality then 
wouldn't you also then, if if those good things are what's going to be judged, wouldn't wouldn't your sin also then still remain? Right. I mean, wouldn't wouldn't the bad things you do still be present with you? So there's no transformation. There's no you're you're just basically the same person. I, I okay. I know the Book of Mormon says the spirit that possesses your body in this life when you leave it will possess it in the life to come. Right. But knowing the gospel as we know it, God's work and his mightiness to save doesn't stop when your heart starts beating. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and Jesus himself says in section 76, this is the fullness of my gospel, the good news, only the sons of perdition are not saved. Now, I believe there's a prison house, Corey, and I the, can you imagine? I don't want to be in a place. The sons of it says that those that were in the days of Noah, it was so wicked. It was so wicked. Only eight souls were saved, and God. It was so wicked that God said, "I got to wipe this filthy humanity off the face of the earth. Not, there's no nothing here worth saving except these eight souls that were on the ark, and the rest of them were were killed. They died in the flood. They went to the prison house." Later on, they come forth and stand at the right hand of God. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't want to spend, look, I've been on this world for, you know, almost 50 years. <laughs> I, I'm surrounded by wickedness. I myself am wicked and many times. I don't want to be someplace for 2,000 years or 1,000 years. I, that's, that is punishment. I mean, yeah. it's not something to be taken lightly at all. Yeah. But. I, that's not what I want to have to correct my heart. You know, I want to respond to Christ now, now in <laughs> now. this, in this fleshly body while I have this time to learn how to submit to him while the, while the will of the flesh is pulling me in all of the sinful ways. It says yield to the enticings of the Holy spirit. Yeah. But it even says the will of the spirit will will you to do good. All you do is yield to that will or you yield to the will of the flesh. Yeah. It's that, it's that, that's where your heart's at, right? You're either going to yield to the flesh or yield to the spirit, but the Holy Spirit's there to will you to do the right thing. Will you yield to that? That's your choice. You know, here's another scripture that speaks to everything you're saying. And it comes back to this, that nowhere does the Book of Mormon say that your place in eternity is classified by, you know, the proportion of your works. And it, it, it simply says this, and he shall come into the world to redeem his people, and he shall take upon him the transgressions of those who believe on his name. Now, this is interesting because it's coming back to the fact that your sin is removed or it is not. He will take upon him the transgressions of those who believe on his name. And these are they that shall have eternal life, and salvation cometh to none else. You know, so those who followed. Um, they have their transgression removed. That opens the door to spending eternity back in the presence of God to enjoy the fullness of everything He has, and that we don't. The, those words aren't even adequate to describe it. But then it compares. Then it says the wicked remain as though there had been no redemption made, except it be for the loosing of the bands of death. So, in other words, the wicked aren't going to die, but no change happens to them because right. their sin isn't removed. And again, this is what the Book of Mormon brings it back to. Now, continually, don't uh, anyone listening? Don't get me wrong. The Book of Mormon continually teaches that we will indeed be judged by our works. It, it tells the straight story. There's a lot of people in the world, a lot of churches, rather, and who say, hey, you know, works don't have anything to do with 
salvation is all belief. Well, that's not what the Book of Mormon teaches in that, hey, as long as I just believe in my head God exists, then I'm saved and, and works don't matter. The Book of Mormon teaches that works do matter in that, as we've discussed recently between us, um, that the point of life is that once we come in this way, not just singling out an idea like baptism, but all the effects of this being baptized and receiving the Holy Ghost and making a covenant, all these things in the way, that our point is to bear fruit because we we want to follow him. And that's the, the fruit by which we are judged is what then God says, hey, if you have been broken and contrite and if you have been faithful in these ways, he said, then is my grace sufficient. You know, then in other words, it's not like he didn't have enough power. The whole thing is we have to demonstrate that, yeah, we did walk in the way. And then he says, then my grace is applied, you know, and that in that, that's what all the sin is removed. Everything is removed. And that's a different philosophy than any of these things teach where it's like, oh, it's all based on what we did. And then we get classified. And there's a, you know, Brigham Young's the one who was the one to quote infinite levels of salvation. His, his words came from that all from a misreading that still exists today of section 76 and the doctrine and covenants. Yeah, so that that phrase "entering into the way" is is interesting, and I would, you know, if I had my way, I would prefer to not even use the word "works" anymore because we've worked so hard, and you've taught uh, a lot on um, dispelling the myth of mainstream Christianity brings that word "quote works" uh, and uses it a lot when really it was, you know, the whole debate was between the works of the law of Moses and the faith in Christ salvation, I would prefer just to use bearing good fruit because that's a better that's, term. I think that's a better picture. And so you could say at the end, you'll be judged according to the fruit that you bore. And, and again, it's not how much fruit, but were you able to get to the point that you were able to bear good fruit by, you know, submitting to the Lord and yielding to the enticings of the Holy spirit. You know, that's such a good word that it's interesting that the book of Acts in the King James Version, um, well, even starting back in the book of John, you know, Jesus is the one who says in John 15, uh, this is in the uh, King James, herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. And then he continues um, in, in the that uh, in the uh, book of Romans, wherefore, my brethren, this is Paul speaking, uh, you also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, dead to the Mosaic law, that you should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, being Jesus, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. You know, And this is Paul's always comparing how the law of Moses was dead and they were supposed to come to Christ now, but that he adds that the he was raised from the dead for this purpose, that we do exactly what you said to bear fruit. Right, and Hebrews, you know, I think it's Hebrews has a, a beautiful word picture of uh, I'm the vine and you're the branch, and unless the branch is tied to the vine, you can't bring forth fruit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's that's to me is that that yielding up to the enticings of the Holy Spirit. When you yield to the Holy Spirit, you do bear good fruit. Otherwise, you're just uh, bearing the fruit of the flesh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Again, the um, well, so when I think sometimes um, I, I 
I realized that I just, you know, I read words from a man who's very revered, Albert A. Smith, and I wouldn't, I don't want to be prideful at all because it's not coming from a place of pride. It's just coming from a place of wanting to understand. And, and I never met, met Albert A. Smith. Um, I'm sh- I would love to meet him. I'm not saying that, that he was a, a bad man. I'm sure he was a very righteous man and very close to the Lord uh, living in that time. But it's, it always goes back. All I can do is read the scriptures for what they say and not let any understandings of man, no matter how reverence, you know, how much reverence that there is for that man or how righteous they were, even if an angel of the heaven comes and preaches a different gospel, then you can't listen to it. And Paul gave us that advice from the beginning. And so I, I guess the question is, is this a different gospel? And I say it's completely contrary when, especially when it when it says men would be rewarded according to their merits, you know, to just yeah. to where they live out eternity. Yeah, it was just in, taking something that wasn't it was right to a point, and then take and then not quite finishing it right. You know, we we talked about this recently, Mike, privately, and you said it. Um, you know, there's a couple things that God's church has to get right, and one of them is salvation. You know, it's like we gotta we gotta be able to explain what salvation is, and 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 you know, I I think there's there's three big things, and this is kind of where I'm going with this. What the Book of Mormon teaches series is that it's come down to this: we've got to know who God is, you know, and what the sacrifice is all about. We've got to know what He's offering in terms of salvation and why it's important. And thirdly, we've got to know how to come to Him. You know, mm-hmm. and and those are the three things that I think are the basic of what the purpose of a gospel and the life that we live, all that is about, you know, who God is, how to come to him and what he's offering in terms of salvation. So, um, you know, Mike, one, one thing too, were you going to say something else? No, no, no. Also I was going to say is, you know, for some of our listeners who haven't uh, been with us through all these series, but you know, it, 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 what's really touching, it really, really is touching Mike. And I, I know you feel this way too, is that, now and then we hear from listeners or meet listeners who say, you know, I've listened to every podcast. And it's like, I haven't listened to every podcast. But, <laughs> right. you know, uh, but it's very touching that some people have followed us. But I, um, and I, we pray before we start that, hey, our words will be from the scripture. And I know everyone wants to do that anytime they're speaking about God or for God. But it's like, what I wanted to mention was that for people who haven't maybe kept up with all the episodes, we've gone into the subject several times. It's something that we feel, I guess for Mike and I, we continue to come back to because these notions from previous generations have um, clouded our vision in, in that we don't see Christ as clearly. We don't see him as this one mighty to save. It's all of a sudden turned around to, oh, how we're going to save ourselves, and oh, maybe there was a Savior, but it was all about what we did. And this is where the Book of Mormon is 2020 vision in this, that no, it's about what he did. How we come to him determines, or if we don't come to him, whether our sin is removed. And some people who haven't listened to podcasts might not realize that we have from time to time gone into depth into a couple of the scriptures that have caused our generation to think it's all about our works. And that's specifically this Doctrine and Covenants section 76, most of, I think, the church's life after death theology was based on what I think has been an incorrect reading of that and a misunderstanding of what it was saying. The best 
place to understand section 76, I believe, is Mosiah chapter 8 in the Book of Mormon. And, and I say that because, uh, well, if you don't mind, I just thought it might be a good place to turn to real quick just to summarize just a little bit of, of what Abinadi said in his final words about this idea of life after death and, sure. and judgment. Um, so the reason I say the best place to understand section 76 is Mosiah 8 is for this reason. Section 76 talks about um, basically four four groups of people. Um, Abinadi talks about the same groups of people, but Section 76 talks about it in, in different words that borrow some words from the Bible like celestial, terrestrial, telestial. Those words don't occur in the Book of Mormon, but the ideas are the same. If we look at the Book of Mormon as, hey, this was the basis, this was in plain language for us to understand, and then compare it to the Doctrine and Covenants, we can learn that they're actually saying the same thing. They are actually saying the same thing. What the writers of the Book of Mormon often talk about is they, literally this phrase, obtaining, obtaining the first resurrection, obtaining, and I'm going to, there's a there's one uh, place where I want to find this, uh, this scripture real quick and, and use it. Um, Jacob 3, verse 17 Jacob, the brother of Nephi, writes about how, you know, we need to come to Christ that we can obtain a resurrection according to the power of the resurrection which is in Christ and be presented as the first fruits of Christ to God, having obtained a hope and glory in him before he manifests himself unto the flesh. Jacob's talking about this resurrection in that our bodies would be restored and our spirits restored together, and in that all of our sin removed and we would live with God on earth. That's when the millennium starts. For people who died before Jesus came, their resurrection, according to Scripture, happened at the time of his death and resurrection. He was the first. These other people who were good were, were resurrected. But I'm, I'm diverging a little. But from Mosiah 8, what Mosiah 8 mentions is this. Um, if, if, there was, if I could only take one chapter, if, say, you know, it was sent on some mission to tell people about the Book of Mormon and about Jesus and salvation, and if I could only take one chapter out of uh, the Book of Mormon for some reason, it, the chapter I might choose would be Mosiah 8 because it's packed with the essentials. And so what Abinadi shares is about who God is, how to come to him, and salvation. And this is what he shares, and the whole chapter is worth reading. But starting it in the RLDS version, um, about verse uh, 50, 53, 52, he, he, quotes, he finishes quoting Isaiah, and I'm just going to read a few verses here. Mosiah eight fifty two. Yea, even the Lord who hath redeemed his people, yea, him who hath granted salvation unto his people, for were it not for the redemption which he hath made for his people, which was prepared for the foundation of the world, I say unto you, were it not for this, that all mankind must have perished. Now, now two things here. He's he's basically coming back to saying there was no hope without Christ. Now, this past tense, were it not for the redemption of the people, that's actually uh, a Hebrew poetic form. When the Hebrews were talking about something in the future that was very, very, very important, they actually put it in past tense. It sounds like he's saying this is something that happened in the past, even though in his life he's before Jesus. But it's just how the Hebrews did it. So some people thinking they needed to fix the Book of Mormon, you know, 
changed even the tense of this in other editions, but in the RCE, it's in the past tense for the reason that that's another sign of the Hebrew authenticity. That's what, that's how they emphasized something mm. in the future. Important to make it sound like it was in the past, but nevertheless, verse 54 Behold, the bands of death shall be broken, and the sun reigneth and hath power over the dead. Therefore he bringeth to pass the resurrection of the dead. In other words, this resurrection that Jacob's talking about, um, to obtain the resurrection, to have our bodies and spirits reunited without sin. And there cometh a resurrection, even a first resurrection, even a resurrection of all those who have been, and which are, and shall be, even unto the resurrection of Christ, for so shall he be called. Now, he's speaking in Old Testament times, if you will, before Jesus. So the the event of Jesus' death and resurrection has yet to happen in a Benedite's perspective. But he's, he's talking about how these people are going to be divided up into three groups. Now, I said the Doctrine and Covenant 6 and 76 speaks of four groups. Abinadi speaks of three, but we're going to get to that here in just a second. So... Here's here's where he talks about what the Doctrine and Covenants section 76 calls celestial. He said, Now the resurrection of all the prophets and those who have believed in their words and all those who have kept the commandments of God, these shall come forth in the first resurrection. They are the first resurrection. So this is saying, hey, the good people who follow God, kept the commandments, you know, bore fruit, they they come forth and, and are with God. What does the Doctrine and Covenants say? Hey, I saw this these people who were bright and celestial, they had been the ones who had been baptized and kept the commandments and all that stuff. They come and live on the earth, you know, during the millennium. Remember, the point of section 76, the, the first big misunderstanding is we thought this was a classification or we thought this was describing people's final places for eternity. It's not. It's describing the resurrection of the just, which is at the beginning of the millennium. In other words, when the dead come forth. Abinadi says the same thing. He says, I see that people who kept the, commandments followed the words of the prophets he says they come forth in the first resurrection joseph smith writes of the same those are the celestial and abinadi says verse 57 they are raised to dwell with god who hath redeemed them and thus they have eternal life through christ who hath broken the bands of death so so the first group we get are the people who followed and obeyed like you said better get it better to get it right in this life than to spend a thousand years wishing you had you know oh my gosh i can't even imagine that that no, to, no. to me, eternal hell is is beyond my concept. But a thousand years in prison, I, I can conceptualize that to some extent because there there seems to be still some time before eternity comes. You know, right, with right. the millennial reign or a thousand years. Yeah, man, I I can't. That's enough to make you shake in your shoes. I hope and drive you to your knees and pray for your for your Savior to save you from your sins. You know, I isn't that exactly what Alma said? He said, hey, I saw the torments. He said, and, and now I can't imagine anyone experiencing this. And he gave his whole life to telling people, no, come to God, come to your knees, like, like you right. said. You know, um, <laughs> in my own life, you know what's frustrating to me? What I'm so aware of time is like you get on an elevator like at a hotel and you press the, the floor you want to go to and nothing happens. Or you press the door close button and nothing happens. And, you know, that frustration <laughs> probably lasts for all of about two seconds. But it's like, come on, why won't something happen? I'm just, it just seems like an eternity then and it's only like two <laughs> seconds. Can you imagine for a thousand years feeling like that for every minute? But the whole point is, and I, and I use that to say because I'm so aware of like nothing's happening, 
for a thousand years that nothing, you know, nothing good. <laughs> That's so funny. And, and then you see people walking like 20 yards away and you're like, oh no, don't, <laughs> you know, the door's <laughs> don't, almost don't shut. And, then, burp, and they're going to put their hand in yeah. there. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, you know, it's like, and those, those moments are like, you know, nothing in life. But can you imagine just being that self-aware for a thousand years of your sin? And that's what he's saying. I'm trying to save you from that. So, Abinadi's speaking of this first group of people. It's the same group that Joseph Smith called celestial. But remember, they're both talking about the resurrection. In other words, coming forth and being alive on the earth. The Doctrine and Covenants, section 76, is not talking about something that happens after final judgment. This is our first big mistake. And this is where all these writings that people have taken have, have kind of gone in their own thoughts and direction because they think it's a description of eternity. It isn't. So the next group of people, Abinadi states, he says in verse 58, and there are those who have part in the first resurrection, and these are they that died before Christ came in their ignorance, not having salvation declared to them. So if it was true before Christ, it's likely true after Christ. But he said there's a group of people who they were totally ignorant. They didn't know the law. They'd never heard it. They'd never, and he said, uh, he says of them, he says, and thus the Lord bringeth about the restoration of these. And they have a part in the first resurrection, or hath eternal life being redeemed by the Lord. So his his mercy and grace covers those who, who die in ignorance, right? Now, some might come to the incorrect conclusion, well, if that's the case, wouldn't the best thing to be ignorant? Wouldn't the worst thing we could do, Mike, is have a podcast telling people about how to come to Christ? You know, yeah, you know. I don't know, Corey. I've I've been raised in the gospel, and I I struggle to not be wayward. Man, if I if I was ignorant to the things of eternity, I'd probably be a, a son of perdition already. Well, that's the whole, <laughs> that's the whole point is that Jesus saying, "Hey, you know what? The chances are you'll be totally, totally rebellious." You know, these are here. Let me go back to the doctrine and covenants because this is the point: is that when it talks about the terrestrial meaning earth and celestial meaning heaven it's like he says hey these were people who were blinded by the craftiness of men but it, the point is that he said their light wasn't as bright but again the mistake is saying this was it, it compares their brightness to the moon but it doesn't mean they live on the moon or go to some other planet like the moon or go to something that's kind of bright but not as bright None of this is about where people were going in the doctrine and covenants it was about the light and truth they had so in Joseph's and Sidney's experience, they write of seeing there were people who came forth in the first resurrection who died without understanding salvation, but they were still good people. And he said, they come forth in this resurrection. Just like Abinadi writes, this is one of the merits and mercies of Christ, Mike, that we as the church have overlooked, and we don't preach it, and we should. It's, but I think we need to preach it from Abinadi's words, verse 58 and 59. Those who died in their ignorance, not having salvation declared, they will obtain this resurrection. Now, it doesn't mean everything's done yet. It doesn't mean that they're perfected and they're finished. That's what, he, that's what this resurrection is about. That's what a thousand years of the millennium is, too, is that nations, it says, are going to put down their weapons of war and they're going to come to Christ and they're going to learn of him. You know, this is when God's kingdom is established. Isaiah 2 states this, that... The people who are living on the earth, 
during this millennium don't necessarily have everything figured out, but their hearts were good, right? And this is this is what it's teaching. And by the end of millennium, that's when I believe Christ will have, as the scriptures say, perfected his work, right? By, by the time it's done, that's when final judgment occurs. That's when you're either on the fully on the right hand or fully on the left, and those on the left were the sons of perdition. Well, there's, there's, there's another group. Now, there technically are four groups by what Abinadi says, but notice verse 60, then, and this is Mosiah 8, verse 60. After he talks about the people who kept the commandments come forth in the resurrection and those who are ignorant to the truth, who are still good-hearted people, I'm supposing, come forth. And verse 60 says, and little children have eternal life. Now, he doesn't go in and explain why that is, but he says, hey, the little children are there too, right? They have eternal life. But now this is where the 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 whole story turns around verse 61 but behold and fear and tremble before god for you had ought to tremble for the lord redeemeth none such that rebelleth against him and die in their sins you know this is what the book of mormon teaches as telestial those who are rebellious when the millennium comes they spend that time in the prison house, or you can call it hell or whatever, but the whole point is for that thousand years when the good people of the earth and the ones who kept the commandments are alive on the earth and little children, he said those who rebelled spend their life for a thousand years in a, in a place of learning, prison, hardship, whatever. There's a lot of different words that describe it, but it's not, it's not in the happiness of the resurrection. And so Abinadi's not using the word telestial, but that's what the Doctrine and Covenants is calling it, is the telestial, these people. But even in the end, he says, they stay there till the thousand years are ended, right? So again, Abinadi's talking about the same thing. He says, the Lord doesn't redeem these who rebel against him. But the Abinadi's language is more strong because he's basically lumping in with that those who the Doctrine and Covenants call perdition. And it's simply that perdition means you fully knew, you fully had the opportunity, you even knew of God's power, and you didn't want anything to do with it, right? After everything's said and done, that's the dividing line of humanity. There's the group who wanted Christ, and I believe some of the perfection of people is happening during the millennium, and you have the people who fully knew and yet wanted nothing. And that's a huge, huge, huge dividing line. In the end, all those who find Christ and want him, their hearts are broken and contrite because they realize there was nothing we could have done. And the people who are on the left hand of God, they knew all about that, and yet they wanted none of it. Yeah, that's one thing that came to mind reading the example. It's not the the width of a hand that separates. It's an awful gulf. Awful gulf. That separates, and that's the the wickedness, the, um, the rebellion of God in your heart that separates you. It's, uh, I, I, you know, if it's just the width of a hand then those two people that are on one side of the hand or the other, Christ gonna, is going to bring them into salvation one way or another, whether it's through suffering in the prison house or whether it's, uh, by receiving more light and glory until they're, uh, you know, covered by the the robe of righteousness. Yeah, and, but but we read there are some that despite that won't choose. Right. In, in Abinadi's final conclusion to this, I think it's worth worth sharing. It, verse sixty two and sixty three and sixty four. Yea, even all those who have perished in their sins ever since the world began that have willfully rebelled against God, 
that have known the commandments of God and would not keep them. You know, this is what perdition means. This is what the Doctrine and Covenants describes. These are they that have no part in the first resurrection. Therefore, had ye not ought to tremble, for salvation cometh to none such, for the Lord hath redeemed none such. He uh, Neither can the Lord redeem such. You know, it's like, it's not that he's just not willing. It's he can't, for he cannot deny himself, for he cannot deny justice when it has its claim. You know, and that's what that's what he's been trying to save us from. So in the end, like you say, I love that phrase you just used. It's not the width of a hand. It's an awful gulf, as, as Nephi describes. There's a huge gulf of wickedness, on, and, the, and the righteous are on one side and the wicked are on the other. This uh, We come back to this because I've, I've really appreciated this theme this, this month, the perfect pressing forward with a perfect brightness of hope. And uh, I think we talked. I, uh, I have the opportunity to... Um, serve families from all different cultures uh, in their homes. And I've been in the homes of people who are Muslim and Buddhist and Hindu. And I see hope in those houses. I see the hope of raising young children and, and I see smiles as they hold those children. I see uh, kids that are happy and, and playing their games and watching their cartoons and TV. And there's hope each day of, of fun. There's hope each day of uh, laughter um, of, of warmth fellowship with their family. That's, that's all I believe aspects of hope, but they also have a religion that, you know, the, the Buddhist religion started by a man who, who sat under a tree and came up with being enlightened from within himself. And, mm-hmm. and that's, you know, there's millions and millions of followers of that religion that had no claim to receive anything from any higher deity other than just to be enlightened from within how much, and yet, how can people that follow that religion be seemingly happy? And how happy are they? I I, I tend to focus on the kids, you know, yeah. but I wonder in the adults how much happiness and hope is there. But I will say this: it's not a perfect brightness of hope because a perfect brightness of hope, a perfect hope, it has to be based on a foundation that's true. And we believe that foundation is Jesus and that we were made by a creator and that he's working to bring us uh, back to him. That's his whole work and glory. That's the only way to have a perfect brightness of hope. And I think the difficulty in seeing the contrast, when you ask yourself, well, what, what's so good about my, I mean, these people are happy. I think the reason those thoughts even come is because, I don't feel like I, though I've been raised in the church and around good people and I have wonderful friends that are saints, as a body of people, there should be a bigger contrast. When there's a body of people that have foundations that are based on truth and a knowledge that their God is mighty to save and bringing them back to him, that perfect brightness of hope you know, changes who you are. And I'm still feeling the effects of uh, growing up in what I believe is was just a false teaching of the word. And no matter how much I read the word now, I still have these voices in my head, these doubts, like how could better men than me not understand, you know, and how have we not preached the righteousness of Christ? You know, that's something I should hear every single Sunday. There, There is nothing else to talk about. I mean, mm-hmm. all aspects of that, his saving his power, uh, 
And so I don't feel like we're a functioning body of people that are living up to our full potential. And yet that's, that's not to put anybody down. It's just saying we have a long ways to go in continually renewing our mind with the word of God and trying to get it right and understand. Yeah. I'm still pulled down by the teachings I grew up with. And, and if, if those teachings are right, then I, I need to understand that better and, and have more hope. But I don't, I don't see the Book of Mormon teaching things the same way as I was taught the understanding. I'm not saying they're wrong. You know, Section 76 not wrong. It's the understanding of it. I appreciate you bringing up this uh, subject and love speaking and sharing with you, my friend. Well, there is a lot of hope out there, but um, to be perfectly bright, that that has a way to change who you are on the inside and um, and and help you go forward. So... It's important to to read this word every day and try to understand it the way God intended and allow that to change you and, and work on you from within. Yeah, and, and while we work, let that work on us, just remember we are all just walking each other home. 